Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Bible Reading Plan Podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, your discipleship pastor and host. This podcast follows along with our church-wide reading plan, which walks you through the entire New Testament and gives you an overview of the Old Testament. Join us as we dive into God's life-changing Word together. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. We are working our way through the book of John, the Gospel of John, and the New Testament part of our BAC reading plan. And just as a reminder, because I haven't said this in a little while, if you're listening to this podcast and you don't yet have a copy of our BAC reading plan, you can go to bedfordalliance.church. That's our website, bedfordalliance.church. And if you look under our Bible plans, you'll find our yearly Bible reading plan, which is what we're following along with here. We're following specifically along with the New Testament part of our reading plan. And this week we are reading John chapters 9 through 13. And just as a reminder, remember we said chapters 1 through 12 in the book of John mentioned three different Passovers which means that chapters 1 through 12 cover three different years. Three years of time are covered. And so in the first 11 or 12 chapters or so in the book of John, they they cover select miracles and events in Jesus' life that really help demonstrate who he is. Okay, But then starting about in chapter 12, the pace really starts to slow down. And John covers the few days leading up to and after Jesus' death and resurrection. So the chapters that we're reading this week get into that transition where we're going to slow down chronologically quite a bit. So there's a lot we could cover in these chapters, okay? but I want to focus on chapter 13 in this particular episode. And I want us to see in chapter 13 how John sets up this this narrative. So in verse 1, It says it was just before the Passover festival. Now, during the earlier Passovers mentioned in John's gospel, this is the third Passover mentioned, by the way, in the gospel of John. During the first two Passovers, something always happens around Passover. So in chapter 2, during the first Passover mentioned, Jesus cleansed the temple. You probably remember that story. In chapter 6, during the second Passover mentioned, Jesus feeds the multitudes, the crowd. And so when Passover comes in the, in the Gospel of John, you, you always know something big is about to happen. And then John continues, he says, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Now, if you remember, John started his Gospel by highlighting the, the divine origins, the heavenly origins of, of Jesus, by highlighting the fact that he is God. He started with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God, and all things were created through him. But he took on flesh, and he came to earth as a man. As John says, the Word took on flesh and dwelled among us. And now John is saying it's time for Jesus to return to his rightful place with the Father. He's once again reminding us who Jesus is. John is reminding us of Jesus' greatness and his, his goodness as well, because he says next, 
having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What an amazing statement. He's highlighting Jesus' unfailing love. Love is what drove him to do what he did. Understand that Jesus deliberately went to the cross. He laid down his life on his own accord. He knew exactly what he was doing. Just as it says here, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world. He knew what was coming. This wasn't a surprise to him. So what drove Jesus to follow through with what he was going to do, even though he knew it was going to be extremely difficult? Love. Love for the Father. Love for us, his followers. So John highlights here in this first verse the significance of who Jesus is. He reminds us that he is God and he is good. And then it says in in verse 2, The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So here we have a contrast being set up. John is contrasting the goodness of of Jesus in verse 1 with a description of really the, the most evil instigator of the most treacherous act ever committed in verse 2. You see this comparison. Verse 1, we have Jesus, Judas, and verse 2. So keep this in mind. Jesus already knows at this point that Judas is going to betray him. Okay, Keep that in mind. That will be important later. Then we come to verse 3. And it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Okay, this, this verse is huge. Jesus knows at this point that all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. And John is again reminding us who Jesus is. He's God. He's the ruler of the universe. And now with that setup, with that little introduction, what John says next is shocking. It's not what you would expect at all. It says, so Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Think about this. This is the last thing we expect Jesus to do here. John just reminded us that Jesus is the Lord of the universe. If you think about it, if you have somebody in your presence, maybe an important government official, maybe even the the president of the United States, and, and someone gives this person a rousing intro to remind you who they are, what do you expect to come next? Maybe a, a speech? Maybe people serving this official in some way, bringing him food, waiting on him? But Jesus flips our expectations upside down. John shows us who Jesus is to remind us that Jesus deserves to be served. But instead, he humbles himself and chooses to serve others. So see how Jesus flips our expectations here. He came not to be served, but to serve. And consider this too. There was obviously no air conditioning at this time. The roads were not paved and shoes were not closed-toed. So what I'm getting at here is that these feet that Jesus washed, these were the dirty, smelly, sweaty feet 
of men who walked everywhere they went, on roads that were covered with dust, and probably things like animal waste. Personally washing someone else's feet like this was considered the job of a servant. This job was the lowest of the low. And yet here we have the Son of God, the ruler of the universe, stooping down to wash his disciples' dirty feet. And think about this. Verse 2 said that Judas had already made up his mind to betray Jesus. Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. And yet Jesus washes all of his disciples' feet, including Judas. What an incredible picture of love and humility. Then we come to verses 6 through 11. These are interesting verses. This is kind of a dialogue between Jesus and Peter. Peter always has something to say, right? Peter recognizes who Jesus is, and he recognizes what a lowly job washing feet is. So he says, you're not going to wash my feet, Jesus. This doesn't make any sense. But Jesus hints at the fact that there's a deeper meaning here. He says, you do, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. You see, Peter is focused on the physical reality of foot washing, but there's a deeper spiritual significance. What Jesus is doing represents the cleansing that he's going to accomplish for his followers on the cross. And so Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Only those who have had their sins washed by the blood of Jesus are included in his family. And then Peter has kind of another impulsive response here, typical Peter. He says, well, then wash my whole body, Lord. But Jesus says, no, no, that's, that's not necessary. All the disciples are already clean with one exception, that one exception being Judas. Okay, so you see this interesting back and forth here with, with Peter. Now, after Jesus finishes washing the disciples' feet, he says, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus has set the example for us. He's saying that if I, the Lord of the universe, if I have humbled myself in this way to serve you, how much more should you serve one another? Or to put it another way, if Jesus isn't too important to humbly serve others, guess what? We're not too important either. We live in a very status-driven world, don't we? A very status-driven world. People will chase fame and notoriety any way they can get it. And when people obtain status, they tend to want to be treated a certain way. They want to be recognized for their achievements. They want to be given the, the quote-unquote red carpet treatment. But here we have the one who created the universe, spoke the universe into existence, and he does the lowest possible job to serve his followers, to show his love for his disciples. And he's saying that he is setting an example for all of us to follow. Then a little bit later in the chapter, Jesus predicts Judas's betrayal, and Judas actually leaves. He leaves to prepare to go betray Jesus. And then with Judas gone, Jesus gives his disciples a new command. He says, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
Have you ever wondered, though, what's really new about this command? Because love one another isn't really a new command here. That's always been a foundational teaching of Jesus. So what's new about this? He says, a new command I give you. The key part here is he says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. This ties into the example that he just set for his disciples, the example that he just gave. He's saying, just as I have demonstrated my love for you through washing your feet, and just as I am about to demonstrate my love for you by suffering and dying for you, you're to love each other in the same way, in that way. Do you see how that raises the stakes here? This command is not simply love one another. It's love one another with a sacrificial love. A love that's willing to humble oneself to the lowest of lows to help another person. A love that's willing to wash dirty, stinky, sweaty feet. A love that's willing to endure death. A love that considers others better than yourself. A love that will go to any length to lift another person up. That's the kind of love that Jesus calls us to. And he says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This sacrificial love sets Jesus' followers apart from the world. But if you're like me, when you hear that, you can't help but think, is my life really marked by that kind of love? And I do think that's exactly the kind of question that we need to be asking here. Does the world look at our love for others and see something different? Or do we look just like the rest of the world? But as we wrap up this episode here, I think there are actually a couple of appropriate responses to this passage. First, I think we should spend time praising our Savior. Don't overlook that as you read through this passage. We can be quick to jump to self-reflection, and we absolutely need that. We need self-reflection. We need to apply this to ourselves. But don't miss this beam of glory that God is giving us here, this view of his beauty, the beauty of our Savior. Praise Jesus for his love, his sacrificial love, his humility, for coming to earth not to be served, even though he deserves it more than anyone or anything in the universe. But even still, he came to earth not to be served, but to serve others. So spend time meditating on this passage this week and spend time praising Jesus. Spend time worshiping him. Don't overlook that. And then in response to that, spend time reflecting on your own life. Is your life marked by sacrificial love? Or is it more marked by selfishness? by seeking after your own desires and complaining when things don't go your way. And I apply this to myself as well, okay? This is absolutely applicable to me. And I want us to consider, let's make this practical here, what's one way that we can demonstrate sacrificial love this week? Who can you demonstrate sacrificial love to? And and what's one simple, practical thing you can do? It could be as simple as, you know what, my spouse always tends to do this one particular chore around the house. This week, I'm going to do it for him or her. Or maybe you can offer help to a neighbor or a friend in need, even when it's inconvenient for you. 
Or is there somebody from our church family who you think might need a helping hand or, or maybe some encouragement? Is there somebody who, who just needs someone to talk to, but nobody ever seems willing? And look, I, I, I get it. We're all busy. All of us are. But if we're going to be marked by sacrificial love, like Jesus says we should be, we have to be willing to put our own agenda and our schedule aside and treat other people as more important. So again, how can you demonstrate sacrificial love this week? And I pray that every one of us would be marked by a love that points others to our Savior, the one who gave the ultimate sacrifice. So let's follow Jesus' example and let's live with sacrificial love for his glory.